Well, good morning. Welcome to everybody who's with us on site and online. We are into week three of our series called Stand, where we're walking through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what we're doing is we're having a look at what does it mean to stand as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so far, in week one, we talked about what it looks like to stand out, which I think is probably one of the toughest. Each week has its own lesson that has challenges to it, but personally, I believe that this first one is probably one of the toughest ones we run into, is this, this need to stand out in the crowd. And we saw that Daniel was an outstanding example of how to stand out for God. Last week, if you're with us, you heard about stand amazed. Stand amazed at our God who is able, our God who has all power and all wisdom and therefore is able to do all things. In particular, we ended by focusing on how Jesus Christ is able to be the cornerstone of every aspect of our lives. Now, there's an underlying message beneath all of those two and today's and the messages coming forward even that I haven't talked about yet, and it's this is that as we talk about each of these messages, these underlying truth is that God is in control. That's actually one of the big messages of the entire book of Daniel, is that even when they're in exile, even when it seems like they've lost everything, even when it seems like they're at the mercy of a foreign power, God is still in control, is one of the key messages throughout the book of Daniel. And that's going to happen throughout today's story as well. And we know this in our lives at times. I remember when Nadine and I first moved here to Edmonton with our kids back in uh, early 2000s. We had just left British Columbia to come to Edmonton so that I could attend Taylor University and Seminary. We had three young children who were all in elementary. I was going to school full-time. Nadine was working two jobs. I was working one job. We're trying to manage the house, and it's busy. It's a very full schedule, and at the same time, money was very, very tight. We kept a budget because we had learned to do that, but also out of the sheer necessity because we had to budget basically to the penny. And then all of a sudden one day, this bill out of nowhere comes in for $300, which was a lot of money in that particular time force. We had no idea how we are going to cover this bill. We prayed about it. I dropped Nadine off at work, and as she walked into her office, Having said nothing to anybody about this, she found an envelope on her keyboard with $300 cash in it. You see, it's moments like this, perhaps you have your own stories that are faith-building. It's stories like this, perhaps from your own testimony, that give us happy glimpses of God's goodness to us. It's moments like that we stand back and we go, God is in control. But we also know that's not the whole story to our lives. That's not our full testimony. We also know there's stories in there about how God throws curveballs. Life, our life throws curveballs at times, and we just don't know really how to hit that curveball. We swing just trying to make contact, but we just can't make contact at times. Life throws us these curveballs. And I, I had a mentor a few years back who summarized a situation like that for me this way. He summarized what I think is just a constant in the human condition this way. He said to me, Mark, you will always be either coming out of a hard time, in the middle of a hard time, or about to go into a hard time. Can you relate to that? That's like everybody else's story, kind of how life unthrows, rolls itself. 
Now, however you define these trials, these hard times, whether they be financial, relational, in terms of what is my purpose for the future, if they're terms of an addiction you're struggling with, it seems that in these moments they are like the antithesis to these happy glimpses of God's goodness, and they take our God is in control, and they turn it into a is God in control? These are difficult moments to go through. And before we jump into Daniel 3, I want to share a passage with you, a verse that comes from the New Testament that might provide some insight into what happens in these moments, but also will help to set the stage for the story of Daniel we look at today. And it's found in 1 Peter verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, These trials, these, these hard times that we all go through, show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is so much more precious than mere gold. You see, these trials reveal the true nature and substance of one's faith. When you take a piece of gold and you put it in the fire, it melts. And as it melts and turns into a liquid, all of the impurities burn off. They burn off all the impurities, and then when the gold is again removed and cooled, all that remains is pure gold. Greater in value, more desirable, and an accurate assessment of the quantity of pure gold that actually exists. And as we're going to see in this story found in Daniel chapter 3 today, a faith that is refined in the fire is a faith that will stand in the fire. Let me show you what I mean as we open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Now, we don't know at this particular point how much time has passed since chapter 2, but we do know that years have passed for sure. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's their time to shine. These guys are government officials at this point in Babylon. And the story in chapter 3 opens with Nebuchadnezzar saying that he has decided to build this massive statue of a Babylonian god. Some people think it may even have been a statue of himself. And it is 90 feet tall. One of the tallest things, if not the tallest thing in the whole kingdom. And you put a base on that statue, we're talking over 10 stories tall for this statue. And then he decides he's going to cover it in gold, probably gold that he had captured from other nations, from other nations' temples, and melted down and then poured over the top where the riches of the other nations' gods now cover his idol. And he places the statue in the middle of an open desert. And as you can imagine, this 10-story tall, gold-finished statue in the middle of an open desert plain with the sun beating down on it would have been blinding, invisible throughout the entire region. And when this is finished, he summons all of his government officials to come to a dedication ceremony. Governors, prefects, advisors, judges, treasurers, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were serving as officials in the kingdom. And he brings them all together around this idol. And that the king's instructions are then shouted out to the assembly. And we see this in verse 5. He says to the assembled crowd, When you hear the sound of horns and flutes and zithers and lyres and harps and pipes and other Dr. Seuss-sounding musical instruments, you must all bow down to the ground and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not... Bow down, whoever does not fall down, whoever does not worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. No matter what you are doing, 
When you hear the royal music begin, stop, drop, and bow towards the statue. It's sort of like at a wedding ceremony, a wedding reception when, when you're eating your meal and you hear this cling, 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 cling. Everyone stops eating. They turn towards the head table to watch the, the bride and the groom kiss. I, I don't know what that's like. Nadine didn't let us do that at our reception, but you've, you've probably been to a reception where that was something that took place. Similar to that, you hear the sound, you stop what you are doing, and you turn towards the statue. Everything's in place, and Nebuchadnezzar gives the command, the music plays, the people bow, they worship the golden idol, and this becomes a regular event in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar's happy, because he perceives that this is all going so well. And yet some of his astrologers notice that there's a couple of guys not following the rules. And so they come to Nebuchadnezzar, and they say, King, didn't you say that when the music played, like, like everybody needs to bow down, and everybody needs to worship, and if they don't, that they would immediately be killed? Nebuchadnezzar says, yes, that is indeed what, what I had said. That was my command. And look, the music played. Everyone bowed down. Everyone is worshiping. Well... Not everybody. See, there's these three governors who are still standing, king. And they were standing because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were conflicted. On one hand, they knew the king's orders, but on the other hand, they also knew the one true king who had also given a command. A command that was written down back in Exodus 20 that says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any images in the form of anything on heaven or on earth. And you certainly shall not bow down and worship them. Well, the king is furious that these men will not do as he's told them. So he has them brought before him to make sure that their ears work and their knees bend. And they're brought before the king and he asks them, you guys were at the meeting. Remember, remember that dedication ceremony? Do you remember when I talked about how the music and the bowing and the worshiping well, I'm getting reports that you're not serving my gods. You're not worshiping my idol. Now, maybe this is just all misunderstanding. Maybe you didn't kind of understand the simple three-step process here. So I'm going to give you a chance. If you are ready to bow down and worship right now, we'll forget this thing ever happened and everything will go back to normal. We'll all be fine. But if you don't, because of your loyalty to some other god, because of your commitment to some other king, I'll immediately have you thrown into the blazing furnace. And then in verse 15, he says in a powerful phrase, he looks at them then, he says, and then what God is going to save you from my hand? Well, their response to that statement is where we're going to spend a bunch of our time today. Because in the course of the next three verses, we see three examples of what it means to have a faith that will stand in the fire. The first thing is this. To stand in the fire is to decide to obey God's will, not man's will. Even if that means you will look foolish in the eyes of man. It's deciding to say, I would rather look foolish in the eyes of man than a fool in the eyes of God. Verse 16. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, they respond. This is not a smug response. You wouldn't understand, King this isn't for you, king. No, it's not a smug response. This is a statement of solid conviction. That when things heat up, they're not going to compromise. 
You see, they had known that they had done nothing wrong. What would have been wrong is to compromise their relationship with God because of the king's order. What would have been wrong if they had given in? Now, some would say, well, who could blame them? Their life was on the line, and everyone else compromised. What would have been wrong if they had decided to fake it? Well, maybe we'll just act like we're worshiping. Like, we'll bow down, but we'll cross our fingers and our toes, and that doesn't count, right? Or maybe they just rationalize it. That would have been wrong as well. Look, we'll bow down and worship because our life was on the line, but then we'll come ask God for forgiveness. That would have been compromising. What would that have said about their faith? What would that have said about the God that they wise focus upon health and fitness? The vendor will not be allowed to sell donuts. Instead, they have agreed to only sell coffee, low-fat muffins, salads, sandwiches, yogurt, fruit cups, and smoothies. Now imagine a donut shop. Imagine a Tim Hortons that sells no donuts. It sounds ridiculous. It completely changes the idea, the concept, the purpose for which it was founded, for which it exists. But folks, that is exactly what we do when we compromise our beliefs to please the world. See, a donut shop should sell donuts. That's kind of logical. Likewise, believers of Jesus Christ should seek to please Jesus Christ. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand in faith to obey God, to please God, even if they look foolish in the eyes of man. Now, secondly, standing in faith is believing that God is bigger than what we can see. We see this in verse 17. They say to the king then, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. You almost feel in this moment as there's this back and forth between the king and these guys. It's almost like two boys in the playground going, my brother's bigger than your brother. My brother's stronger than your brother. My brother can beat up your brother. Which is childish. But if you look at a scenario, if you've ever been, maybe you've been one of those little boys or those little girls who has had those sorts of comments. When I did that when I was younger, it was, my sister can beat up your brother. And sometimes she did for me. But that's another story for another day. But it comes from the basis that the younger brother has this unwavering confidence based in his older brother that comes from past experience. Maybe that past experience includes the younger brother, you know, getting a bit of a tuning in from his older brother somewhere along the road. Maybe it comes from his older brother had to open some jars for him, lift some boxes that were too heavy for the younger. Maybe when the younger brother is in the presence of the older brother, he feels safe, he feels protected. Maybe there is even a moment where the older brother had to defend the younger. And based upon these past experiences, the younger brother now stands confidently in the playground saying, my brother's bigger than your brother. You see, these three friends stand in faith based upon the past goodness and protection of God in their lives. Upon the God that is bigger than their problem. This is what Hebrews 11.1 talks about. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible when we talk about faith. When it says faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now some people see a verse like this and they'll claim that believing in God, faith in God is blind faith. It's like jumping into the abyss, into darkness, into nothingness, and hoping something, sometime, somewhere, somehow will catch you. 
I would suggest to you that it's anything but that. You see, faith is confidence. And the word confidence here is the Greek word hupastis. And it means substance. It means solid, sure, firm foundation. And while there may be mystery that remains around the solution, there may be an unknown around the outcome that is yet to happen in this situation, we hope that it will arrive not standing alone, not standing on shaky ground, but standing firm, standing in faith in the God who is able. That's the context of Hebrews 11. If you were to continue reading the rest of the verses in this chapter in Hebrews 11, you would see that we enter into the hall of heroes of the Old Testament, of these people who received a promise, who lived by faith in that promise, and God showed up every single time. And that based upon that past faith, it gave them the resolute confidence in the present to believe in the future fulfillment of the promise. But here's what else happens. When we stand firmly fixed, confident in our face, faith is confidence. And when we stand on that confidence, something else happens. It leads us to assurance. The Greek word for assurance here is helahas. And helahas means conviction that is not static. Conviction that is not complacent. That means it is active. That means we have such faith. We have such confidence in the moment that it compels us to take steps of faith. It doesn't just sit back and go, God, I believe you'll deal with it, and when you're done dealing with it, pick me up by the scruff of my neck and drop me where you want me next. That's not what it talks about. It is a faith that is so sure, so confident of what is yet to happen that it compels us to take a step of faith, and then another step of faith, and another step of faith, until we find ourselves in the fulfillment of the promise that God has led us towards. Elahas, conviction that is not static, it is active. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had such who passed us in the God's past faithfulness to them that it moved them to action to declare to this king, our God is big enough. Our God is able to save us from your hand, king. Whatever you might be facing, however you might be defining a hard time, do you believe that God is bigger? Do you believe that God is able? If you define a hard time in terms of finances, you can say, my God is bigger. My God is able to provide for all of my needs, and I humbly submit myself to his definition of needs. Whether it might be job uncertainty, you can say, my God is bigger. My God is able to see me through this time of unemployment or this time of uncertainty, and he will guide me to the right opportunity in his timing. You can say in the times of marriage or relational issues, you can say, my God is bigger. My God is able. He can restore what we have broken. In times of health concerns, you can say, my God is bigger, and he is able to place his healing hand upon me and free me from this. He can lead me to the proper doctors, technicians, appointments in his timing and the need that will bring me health. But between now and then, I stand firmly fixed upon the trust that he is with me and that he will walk through this with me. Now, even as I say that, I know that there are people, whenever we talk about faith, there, there are people who hear this word, and, and, and they're very pragmatic. And sometimes I count myself among these people, being very pragmatic. And always then responding and saying, well, life doesn't always turn out that way, though. It doesn't always come out the way that I hope for. I believe, and I pray, and I try to trust, but I still struggle. And it begs the question, 
What if God doesn't come through the way I expect him to? Well, that leads us to our third point. That when we stand in faith in God, it involves us doing our best and trusting God for the rest. Verse 18. But even if, even if he doesn't save us, King, you need to know that we will stand in faith with him. Your majesty, we will not bow down and serve your gods. We will not worship the idols that you have set up. We will stand in faith with our God, even if. Now, for those who know the end of the story, you might think, well, this isn't a hard thing to say. You know how the story ends. You can stand boldly before a king when you know how it's going to work out. But they didn't. They they had no idea how the story was going to end. They believed God could, but they didn't know if he would save them. In reality, isn't that the nature of so many aspects of the life that we face? We know God could, but we're not sure if he would. That's the nature of it, and that leaves us to a choice. Because so much of life really is out of our control. And this forces all people, not just religious people, it forces all people to live by faith. It's really just a question of what they will place their faith in. Remember back about six months ago when this whole Rona thing started? It seemed like this virus was, was changing and increasing rapidly, like daily, sometimes hourly, was changing. How did people respond? When these times of uncertainty, when these times of un, you know, confusion, lack of control started to well up, how did people respond? Well, one of the first things people did was they kind of circled the wagons. And they started to stockpile. Stockpile supplies. And there was this race to see who could corner the market on toilet paper the fastest. I don't even know why they did it. It's not even an intestinal illness. Like I still have yet to this day to understand why, why toilet paper, <laughs> of all things. But anyways, that was what happened. Now, like everybody, Nadine and I went to Costco in the grocery store, and we bought some extra stuff. We, we did buy some toilet paper. We, we also bought a freezer pack because they were saying, well, meat might be the next shortage. So we bought some extra meat. We bought some rice and pasta and things like that, in part because they're just regular things that we have in the pantry, but also because the shelves were starting to get empty and a lack of items on the shelf increases your desire for those things. It reached a point where the shelves were getting empty enough, I walked past a a pile of spam, nobody's buying spam, and I thought, maybe we should get some spam. Like, maybe that's the next thing, right? Corner of the market on spam. We didn't buy any, and there hasn't been a shortage of spam for some reason. but, But people were stocking up. Now, on one level, there's wisdom in this. You see, one of the ways that God provides for us is he gives us brains to use. And in certain moments, there's wisdom to take these steps, to to do some things that are wise in such moments. But for some people, it crossed the line to something else. It crossed the line to hoarding. Carts full of supplies. Carts so full that as long as i got mine, I don't care if anybody else gets theirs. Now, some people were motivated to this through profit. But there is another category of people who did this, who are motivated by a loss of security, who are trying to find some way to regain control over what they were losing in their lives. If I can just accumulate enough stuff, if I have enough toilet paper and spam, I'll be okay. I'll have my comfort. 
I'll have my security. This shows up in other areas of our lives, even aside from, from a pandemic. If I can just accumulate enough money in the bank, if I can just get the right house and the right wife and the right, and the right vehicle, I'll be okay. It shows up in all sorts of areas. But here's the problem. Even a stockpile of items eventually runs out. That, that's the definition of fleeting. It runs out eventually. And you cannot put hupastus, confidence, in things that are fleeting because they will fail you. Things of this world, possessions, people will fail you. Psalms 20 verse 7 says, There are some people who trust in chariots and trust in horses. There are people of this world who trust in things that they can accumulate, that they can create, that they can put forward. But they're just fleeting things of this world. Some people trust in chariots and horses, but it finishes by saying, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in the one who is ever present, who is ever faithful, who is ever trustworthy, the one upon whom we can depend in every situation, whether we're talking about a coronavirus or if we're talking about the direction our kids choose. If we talk about the finances we have or don't have, if we think about the future, even when we think about the future of the ministries of the God's church, we can turn and trust to the one in whom has proven himself faithful. And in these moments, we need to walk by faith to do our part, but then continue in faith, trusting that God will do his. You see, in these three verses, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego demonstrate that when we stand in faith, number one, we decide to obey God and not man. And that number two, we believe that our God is bigger than the situation we find ourselves in. And number three, we walk in faith doing our best and trusting in God for the rest. Now, this stand in faith, this response infuriated Nebuchadnezzar. They disobeyed him. They had insulted his gods. They had claimed they had greater power than him. So he responds to them. And he says to them that his attitude had changed. There's no more second chances. So he orders in that moment that the furnace be heated up. Hotter than it ever had been before. Seven times hotter. Almost as hot as his temper in this particular moment. And he orders the strongest men in the room to bind these guys, to tie them up, and to take them up and throw them in the furnace. And the furnace is so hot that as they get near it, the soldiers who threw these three men in are scorched and killed on the outside. That means that a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fly through the air into the furnace, they should be instant death. But the king stands in amazement yet again. He stands in amazement because he can't believe his eyes. And he asks his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Yes, your majesty, there were three men. Did, did one of your guys fall in with them? No, sir, you saw them. They all scorched and died on the edge. It was rather gruesome, if you will recall. Well, in verse 25, look, for I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. He's left with no choice at this moment but to acknowledge the power of their God. The power in whom they stood faithful. 
And he calls them now, servants of the Most High God, come out. And he offers praises to their God. And he declares to all nations in his kingdom that nobody is ever to defame the name of their God. Which sounds like he might be on the verge of a conversion experience. But we'll see next week that he's not. But here, folks, is the final point I want to leave you with today. And it comes actually out of verse 27. And it talks about when they emerge from the furnace. It says this in verse 27, that, that all, the, all the leaders gathered around them, and as they came out of the furnace, they said, look, the fire has not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Man, I can sit around a campfire and I, and I can't escape the smoke <laughs> just, just chasing me no matter where I sit. And, and, and it burns my eyes and I choke and I smell of smoke the whole time. But from this verse, we can see that when God saves, he saves completely. No smell of smoke, no singe of fire was left on them. And only God can do that. Only God can completely, perfectly save us. I don't just mean from things of this world. I mean only he can perfectly and completely save our souls. There are many people in this world who trust in other things and in themselves and other gods and other philosophies. They trust in their own abilities to earn their right standing before God. But in the end, without that fourth man in the fire, without Jesus Christ, they just end up getting burnt. But that's not God's desire for anybody. That's never been his will for anyone. That's why Jesus came. That's why God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come pay the price for the sin that separates us from God. That sin that separates from God and, and leads us to a point where the scripture says the wages of sin are death. And yet Jesus stood in the fire and said, I'll take that upon me for you. And in his death, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because upon him, every sin was laid. And just as Jesus became identified with our sin and dealt with it, we can become identified with his victory and live in it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness. That we might become those who stand in right standing with God. And that's what happens when we place our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins. We place our faith in him. And God does the rest and saves us completely. Now some may question, if God can save me completely, why do I still need to go through the fire? It's a fair question. If you look back at the story, if God wanted to, if he wanted to, he could have extinguished the fire. He could have turned it into a sauna. Why is there four men in the sauna? But he didn't. God could have appeared before they were tied up and halted the whole process. The bigger brother on the scene to, to solve the problem. He could have saved them. He could have saved us from ever having to go through any fires in our lives. But as I look back upon my life, and and, and I'm going to bet that as you look back upon your life, that more often than not, 
God does not choose to save you from the fire, but instead he saves you in the fire. And as you look back and think about how those stories unfolded and the outcomes of those stories, you're probably going to find that they were some of the most formative moments in your life that ever happened. Some of the most formative moments where your faith was refined, where it was tested, and by being tested it was built up, it was purified, it was strengthened, and it became more valuable in the end for what lie ahead. I can tell you this, that when we choose to stand in faith in the midst of the fire, not only is our faith built up, but others will see it in us and see Jesus through us. Not a physical demonstration of his power and presence necessarily physically seeing him but they will see him through us that when you stand in the fire and you have an inexplicable peace and confidence in the midst of the situation they will see Jesus that when you have hope that endures when others hope has given up they will see Jesus in you and that when you choose to still raise your arms still raise your voices still lift your hearts in praise others will see Jesus in you so whether you're going through a trial right now, maybe you're emerging from one or you know there's one just around the corner, I want to encourage you to stand in faith. Trusting in God and not in the wisdom of the world. Trusting that your God is bigger than your situation and committing to do your best and trust God for the rest. We'll still often have to walk through the flames But you will not walk through those flames alone because there is another in the fire with you. And that walk is not without purpose. Because as you walk through that fire and emerge on the other side, you will have a faith that is refined in the fire and that will stand 